If you have a Bible, um, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We've been there for, for really since September because we've been talking for the last three or, three or so months, uh, three or four months, about is change possible? Because we've talked about how we tend to idolize change and really begin to believe that if I could just change certain areas of my life, that it would make my life so remarkably better. And so we look for ways to change. We read books, we read articles, we listen to people speak. And we talk about, is change really possible? And the church uses that word a lot. And so we began to unpack that from this perspective, that when Christ comes in our lives, the gospel says, the scripture teaches us that we've come from death to life, that we've come from dark to light that we've been from old to new, that radical change has already taken place. And so with that perspective, we came to Second Peter. In chapter 3, it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That's true for every person that's a believer. So we asked, if that's true, then why do so few believers live that way? That you've got everything. We said, well, often it's because we don't know that we have everything. The guy who has nothing is no different than the guy that has everything but doesn't know that he has anything. That make sense? Write that down. Go back and figure it out later. All right? But I begin, when I participate with the divine, as it goes on to talk about here, I begin to see that I have everything I need for life and godliness, which frees me now to live by faith. And then we've been talking this fall about how to fan that faith into a flame and live in the power of what you already have living in the essence of who you really are in Christ. As Watchman Nee would say, we spend a lot of time praying that God would put us in a room we're already in. So opening our eyes to see the room that we're already in and living in the reality of that. So we finish that series, and then we ask this question, so if we're that transformed, how do we take that transformation into life? And we've been talking about money. How does a transformed person view money? Two weeks ago, we said that First, we have to realize that money is competing with my heart's transformation. In other words, Scripture says that where my treasure is, my heart is also. That where I'm going to put a treasure in front of my heart, my heart's going to wrap itself around that treasure. And what I treasure, I worship. What I worship, I serve. What I serve marks how I live my life. And money is the only thing that promises what God promises. I will give you everything you need. So we talked about that two weeks ago, that we have to guard our heart. Then last week we talked about the spirit of generosity that's in Christ and now that is in us and how we live generously. Um, But this week, I want to talk about as a transformed person, if I'm going to live generously, how much do I give? Like, literally, I want to know, like, I want to know a dollar amount. Like, how much should I give? How much can I keep and how much do I need to give to God? Uh, How much do I give away? And how much can I spend on movies, food, vacations, clothes, all that other good stuff? And let me acknowledge a couple of things. I grew up in a church where I kind of believed that God was kind of like a loan shark. That really, honestly, because I always felt that I kind of had to pay God off. What I mean by that is, you know, I kind of grew up, because I heard verses like in Luke chapter 6, it says, give and it shall be. See, you all know it too. Give and it will be given unto you, but it just won't be given unto you. How will it be given to you? Like packed down, overflowing, you know, you've heard sermons on this, you know. It's just going to be overflowing like crazy. 
So I heard sermons like that, like if I give, then I get rewarded for that. But then I heard passages like from Malachi 6. It says, if I don't tithe, then I'm robbing the temple of God and that God's ticked at me. And so I kind of live with this vague sense of, okay, I need to give enough to where God's going to give me his blessing, but I don't want to give so little that God's going to take his blessing away from me. So I wanted to know exactly what's the dollar figure that I can give to God and pay him off so that I can get the good stuff and don't get my legs broken. I mean, honestly, see, let me say this. I don't know about you, but when it comes especially to church, it is so easy to live under the clouds of shoulds, you know, that just should happens, and it happens bad in churches. Like, I should pray more. That's a good should. I should read the Bible more. That's a good should, you know. I should, you know, have more encouraging words for the people around me. I should exercise more. Here's a big should. I should give more. And the vague thing about shoulds is this constant belief that whatever I'm doing, it's not enough. And if what I'm doing is not enough to satisfy God, then I always live in this place of shame and disappointment in myself, and I'm certain in God. And if I'm living in that place of should, then it's really I'm living in what Jesus calls this lukewarm place. I'm neither hot nor cold. I don't draw near to God with confidence because I don't think he's really happy with me. But I don't draw completely away from God because I don't want to be without him. So I kind of live in this place to where I have everything, but I don't feel the right to ever spend it or ever use it. Does that make sense? So, how much do I give? Do I live in the shoulds? Is God somebody that I need to pay off? Is God going to get mad at me if I don't give, if I give 9%? Is God going to go, ha, ha, not enough? Close. Break a finger. How about if I'm really spiritual, do I give it all away? Depends on how much you got and if you want to give it to me. No, I'm joking. Uh, let's think about this for a minute because Jesus said to the rich young ruler, what did he say to him? Go and give 10% to the poor and then come and follow me. No, he said, go and give everything to the poor and come and follow me. And a lot of you may be coming from traditions where you've heard that. And so if you have anything, you feel guilty. If you go on vacation, you feel guilty. Like, if you buy off the top end of the menu, you feel guilty. Because in reality, you're living with this vague sense of command in the back of your mind that really you should be giving Jesus everything. Well, let me encourage you with this. Jesus didn't demand that everybody that follows him gives everything they have to him. In this specific situation, Jesus was talking about this man's heart, not his stuff. And what he was trying to say to this guy is your stuff has a death grip on your heart. And until you get rid of your stuff, you're not going to be able to see. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, these before and after pictures that they use to try to get people not to use meth. You know, I always thought, you know, what kind of person like needs that poster? You know, I was really thinking about doing meth this weekend and I saw that picture and, you know, I don't have any dental insurance, so I'm not going to do it. You know. Now, I'm making a joke of a really serious thing because, you know, think about the insanity of someone that thinks that meth is really a good option for their life, all right? Well, let me tell you something. I know a lot of people that in their insanity think that meth is a good option for their life. 
Also, not a lot of people that in their insanity think alcohol is a good option for their life. I know a lot of people in their insanity that really believe that money is going to make them happy. That it really will give them everything they need for life and godliness. See, Jesus was addressing this guy's heart. I would even put money on the table if he said, okay, I'll give it all away. Jesus says, well, you don't have to now. Because he was dealing with his heart. So, if God is dealing with our heart, what do we give? In the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter uh, 27, 30, it says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. So, in the Old Testament, God has set up for the nation of Israel this thing called the tithe. Now, it was an agricultural culture, so they were saying, the things that you do have, you need to give of those things. And the tithe actually meant 10%. Now, is that what we're supposed to give? Now, if we had time this morning, we could begin to study more of the Old Testament because if we did, we'd begin to realize that there were actually three tithes on the nation of Israel. See, every Jew is required by the Levitical law to pay three tithes of his property one tithe to the priest or the Levites, one for the use of the temple and the great feast that they did annually, and then one that was to go to the poor of the land. Actually, it wasn't 10% a good Jew gave to the temple. It was actually 30% of their income that went to the state of Israel, to the temple of Israel, and to the care of the poor in their country. So which tithe do we give? Okay, that makes it kind of sticky, doesn't it? All right, well, let me take it a little bit more stickier. If we're committed to the Old Testament 10% tithe, then let's talk about, because remember, we're, we're trying to say, how do I get the blessing? How do I avoid the curse? You know, how do I get good, God's good stuff? How do I keep my fingers from being broke? You know, that how do I get God to be on my side? What part of the 10% do we give? In other words, like, should you tithe 10% of your gross or your net? Like, let me, let me ask you this question. Like, when you get your check, and money's already been taken out of there, right? But the Lord says, give to me first. So shouldn't you give 10% of what you made before the government took their piece? And then, if that's true, what about, like, when you get bonuses? Should you tithe your bonus? And then, like, when people give you gifts for Christmas, should you tithe 10% of the gifts? Because that's something that you're receiving what about this? What if you have a garden? You know, should you tithe 10% of your garden? If you grow really healthy, great tomatoes, yes, to me. Just bring them over. And then, but what about this? Here's an air. What if you have a dog that has puppies? Honestly, I mean, they're yours, right? Should you give a puppy to the church? No, you should not. <laughs> You know, we laugh about this, but do you realize that uh, these are things that can wrap up in your head and get all twisted around and put a law on you that, uh, that you begin to live under and create these shoulds in your life that begin to poison the transformation that has already taken place in your life. So let's go back and take a step back and let's ask ourselves, how deep or how powerful is this transformation when it comes to something like the tithe? In Romans chapter 8, it says, For what the law was powerless to do, 
and that it was weakened by sinful nature. What does that mean? That the law was powerless to bring about the transformation that I radically needed in my life. The law did not have the capacity to give me a new heart. The law did not have capacity to bring me from death to life. The law couldn't do it. And the reason it couldn't do it is because of you guys. Seriously, it's because of me. Because we're sinful. We can't keep the law. Actually, we break the law. And what was intended to give us life now gives us death because it condemns us that we're now lawbreakers. So what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of a sinful man, or in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. What he's talking about there is that God became flesh. He became Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life, meaning he never sinned. He met the requirements of the law. He was the only one that ever has, ever will, lived perfectly under the law and satisfied all the requirements of God. And guess what he did with that perfection? He traded us for it. He said, here's what I'm going to do. Here is my perfect record, what you were not able to do, what you thought you could do but you couldn't do and then became a curse for you that you thought were going to be your blessing. Now it's a curse on top of you. And here's what Jesus said. I'm going to exchange my blessing for your curse. He who knew no sin became sin so that I could become the righteousness of God. I could become the righteousness. You could become the right. I moved from the place of curse now to the place of blessing because Jesus exchanged that. Go to the next verse because it says, And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law may be fully met in us. Wait a minute. Now the the law is fully met in us. I thought it just said we couldn't meet the law. Well, now it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Now Christ has given me a new heart and dwells in me, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Meaning, now that God has given me a new heart through the work of Christ on the cross and through the resurrection of His Son, now He's transformed me. I get to live in that transformation. What does that mean? means this, if you're in Christ, you are blessed, 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 blessed. I don't care if you give 1%, 50%, 100%, no percent. You are blessed, blessed, blessed for one reason, because Christ has blessed you by his work on the cross and his resurrection. If I am in Christ, guess what I get from the Father? If I've become a believer, guess what I get from, from, from my Father in heaven? Everything Jesus does. Matter of fact, because of the righteous work of Christ, the Father is now bound by his own law to treat me like a son. And not just any son, the one and only son. You believe that? Now God is bound by his own holiness to work all things together for the good of those who love him, which is me, and are loved by him, which is me. He's bound by his holiness. That means that nothing that's happening in my life right now is by mistake and outside of his will for me. And it also means that God is not working everything in my life toward blessing his glory. See, in 2 Corinthians 8, it says, Jesus, who was rich in his righteousness, he became poor. He came under the curse so that we who are poor under the curse could become rich in the blessings of the Father. See, Christ set us free from the law. 
See, we are now new creations in Christ. His record is now our record. We have right standings with God, not because of anything we do or anything we will do or anything that we did. We have right standing with God as our Father because of what Christ did, what He accomplished. And on the cross, He said, it is finished. And when He rose again, I rose with Him to newness of life. Christ did it all. And because He did it all, I'm fully blessed in all the blessings of Christ. There's no more lone shark God. I'm not trying to win his affection or lose his affection. I can't buy it. I can't sell it. I am in it if I'm in with Christ. (laughs) Boy, I kind of beat that dead horse, didn't I? Well, here's what I want you to hear, okay? We're in grace now. We're not bound by the tithe anymore. Woo! A lot of you are going, please end the sermon right now. Please end it right now, right now, right now. Amen. Let's go. See, does God need your money? (laughs) I mean, do you think when Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler that the angels in heaven were going, come on, man, give it, give it, give it. There's so many things we could do if you just gave it, give it, give it. And when he didn't, you think they were going, ah, and went back to God and said, yeah, Lord, we'd really like to do good things, but that guy just didn't give up his cash. Where are we going to raise capital? We've got to raise capital. I don't think God's doing that. So if God doesn't need my money, If God doesn't even want my money, okay, what's going on here? Here's a hint. In the Old Testament, God made a little stipulation about the tithe. He said the 10%, he said, give it first. In other words, what he was saying to the Israelites were, give, then learn how to live. Not live and in your lifestyle figure out how much to give. God was saying, do this first. And the reason he was doing that is because he was caring about something other than our possessions. What was he caring about? Here's what I want to suggest to you this morning. God cared about how we live our life, the rhythm of our lives. Like, who has the right to determine the rhythm of your life? How much you work, how much you sleep. How much time do you give to friends? How much time do you give to family? How much time do you give to yourself? How much time do you give to hobbies? I mean, who gets to determine the rhythm of when you're silent and when you speak? Who gets to determine the rhythm of how much you eat, how much you exercise, how much you take care of yourself, how much you take care of others? Who gets the, who gets the privilege of saying to you, no, not that way, this way? Does anybody? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that the Lord is saying he has the right and he wants you to yield to it. Let me explain. When the Israelites were given the law, we have to remember that this is a group of people that had been in slavery for 400 years. These were really old people. Some of you are like, I, okay, give me a second. I'll catch up with that. No, there was generation after generation of people that were in slavery. What I mean by that is this, is that is we have to understand that when the law came to these, these were people that all they knew was slavery. Their fathers knew slavery. Their grandfathers knew slavery. Their great-great-grandfather knew slavery. This was all they knew that were brought out into the desert. And God had to say to them, all you know how to do is think like a slave. All you know how to do is live by the rhythm of a slave. All you know how to do is trust like a slave. Now I need to teach you a new rhythm. I need to teach you the rhythm of how to live like free people. 
Now I need to teach you a rhythm how to live in the promise. I need to teach you how to be a people that live into something you've never been before, but you always were mine, my treasured possession. And that's what he called them. So listen to some of the things that he did. Like one of the things that he said is I want to teach you about this thing called the Sabbath. Every seven days, stop and rest. Think about that, that God is saying you're used to working 24-7, seven days a week. And God is saying, now that you're free, you need to understand a new rhythm. Stop, breathe, rest. He even said that about money. He said, you're used to hoarding, you're used to hiding, you're used to surviving. Now you need to learn a new rhythm of giving. Interesting, in this book, uh, Peter Scazzaro, uh, it's a book our staff went through this year, The Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. If you've not read it, uh, it's great because if you don't know how messed up your family system is, then you need to get this book and then you'll find out how much you need Jesus. Uh, He says in here, Adam and Eve legitimately worked and enjoyed their achievements in the garden. They were to embrace their limits, however, and not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did you catch that? That God at the very beginning with Adam and Eve said, I want you to embrace your limits. Meaning you can have everything but this. As theologian Robert Barron argued, at the heart of original sin is the refusal to accept God's rhythm for us. The essence of being in God's image is our ability like God to stop. He's talking about the Sabbath now. We imitate God by stopping our work and resting. If we can stop for one day a week, or for many Sabbaths each day, we touch something deep within us as image bearers of God. What he's saying there is simply this, that God has put a rhythm within us. And when we yield to God's rhythm, it begins to awaken something within us. Just like Jesus didn't want the rich young ruler's stuff. He wanted the rich young ruler. But he knew until the rich young ruler let go of how he was living his rhythm, he would never accept the greater rhythm of God on his own life. So how do we live? You know, let's go back to money for a second. You know, God has given us a rhythm through the Old Testament, which is 10%, which is a great place for us to start. Because when I start by saying, God, you can have the first 10%, and I'm not talking about gross, I'm not talking about net, I'm not, I mean... Who cares about that stuff? What we're talking about is setting aside this place where you give to God first and then live your life. One of the things quickly gets revealed, your limits. And when we reveal our limits, it reveals the limitless of my father. It reveals where I need to trust him. It reveals some of my fears. See, our limits reveal that everything you have is from the Lord. Everything we need is from him. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So he's saying, do you realize that everything you have is from the Lord? Right? Well, do you realize that the reverse is true too? That everything you don't have is because the Lord said you don't need it. Okay, i got to be honest with you. I can kind of handle everything is from the Lord. That's a good Bible thing. But realizing that 
What I don't have is that the Lord, in his mercy, because I'm in the position of his son, working all things together for the good of me, has said, no, not yet. Wow. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 through 6, it says, keep your eyes or keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. There it is again. Be content because what is contentment? Contentment is simply wanting what I have. When I stop wanting what I have, that's when I begin to envy because then I see what you have. And I want what you have because I don't want what I have anymore. So he's saying here, keep your lives free from this love of money. Learn to be content with what you have because God has said, now, don't read ahead, okay, stop. Because here's what I want you to hear. Out of all the things God could say about being keeping your life free from money, if you're going to step into the journey of saying, I'm not going to love money and I'm going to learn contentment, what are the two things that are going to be the hardest things for you? What are going to be the hardest challenges for you to say, I, I'm going to I'm going to learn how to give in the rhythm of God, and I'm going to learn how to step my life into this place where I'm going to be content with what I have, and I'm going to learn not to mark my life by the love of money. Look what he says. These are two things you're going to need to know if you're going to go on that journey. Never will I leave you, and never will I forsake you. You're not alone. You're in the place of blessing. So he says with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What's man going to do to me if I start living like this? Well, the man is you. And let me tell you what's going to happen. If you start living like this, something inside you is going to scream. I promise you. So let's take a little test. You ready for this? All right, we're almost through. But let's take a little test like one of those things you do in a magazine. And let's ask yourself, what kind of giver are you? All right? What kind of giver are you? Because I think the kind of giver you are is going to determine is going to reveal whether you're living in the rhythm of the Father. First, are you a passive, spontaneous giver? What I mean by that is that you're passive. Like, like you give when people ask. Like when the church's budget dips, you give, or when somebody comes up to you and asks, you give, and you're kind of spontaneous. You're on the spot, kind of thinking, what do I need to give? Like if somebody th- shows you pictures late at night of little kids starving in third world countries and you know you that 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 you kind of give or you try to avoid those commercials you know or somebody comes up to you and says hey they're homeless and they want money and so you kind of feel you know in essence what you're doing is you're feeling guilty and they played the right card or they pulled the right string therefore they get money in other words your money is being used in your own life to do three things it's bringing me self-protection, self-glorification, and self-satisfaction. That's the three journeys of our flesh. Apart from God, I exist to do those three things. Self-glorification, self-protection, self-satisfaction. So when you pull the right guilt strings, I've got to get myself back to a safe place, so I'll give you some money. If you make me feel bad, I'm gonna, I, I need to feel good. And so I'm using my money now to manipulate myself into a place that's safe. Passive, spontaneous. Or are you an active and intentional giver? Meaning that you begin to understand that you're a steward of what God has given you. That it all belongs to Him. But He's allowed you now to be the overseer of what it is that He's let you temporarily manage. And understanding that, you need to be led by the Holy Spirit. 
In other words, you're active and intentional about the way that you're using the things that God's given you specifically in your giving. Like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the story of Scrooge. You know, Christmas is coming up. We talked about how before the, uh, the ghost came, Scrooge was always scheming about how he could get more money for self-protection, self-glorification, and self-satisfaction. It was all about him. Self is at the center. But after the ghost left, isn't it remarkable? He's still scheming. But what is he scheming with the money now? How do I bless this person? How do I bless that family? How do I help Tiny Tim? How can I do that? The scheming didn't stop, but the center of the scheming did. So I'm not challenging you to scheme, not stop scheming. Just how do you scheme with the Holy Spirit? How do you say to the Holy Spirit, Lord, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where it talks about, I give out of my heart what the Lord leads me to give. How do I let the Holy Spirit lead me? One of the ways that we do that is we stop believing in backseat convictions. What I mean by that is when I was uh, in youth ministry, every year we did a series uh, on sex and sexuality, which became uh, the most popular series that we would ever do. I don't know why, you know, with teenage kids. And we talked about, you know, all kinds of stuff and how to honor the Lord in this area of your life. And at the end of the series, we'd always have a Q&A where they could write questions down on pieces of paper and put them on a bowl, and we'd have a panel of people up front that would pull them out and answer them. Don't ever do that. Asking a bunch of teenagers to write down anonymous questions on pieces of paper, you had to throw away a lot of them before you get to a legitimate question. But uh, the question that we always got was, how far can I go before it's sin? Anybody got an answer for that question? Okay, all right. Why were they asking that? I mean, isn't this the question, is how, how close to the edge can I get before God says, ah, you sinner. You know, and now I feel crummy and I got to repent. Like, how far do I go? In other words, Lord, I'm not thinking about how to honor you. I'm thinking about how to get what I want. And how far can I go to get what I want before you're going to interrupt it? And it's interesting is that we talked about that the conviction of how far you can go is never birthed in the backseat of a car. You don't go, you know, I've never really wrestled with that, but now that we're making out, you know, I really, I think I really need to think about that. You know, the passion of the moment, there's no way to be reasonable and rational about what the Lord desires at that point because all you care about is what you desire at that point. And what I'm saying to you is this, that it is hard to, to in a spur of a moment, birth deep conviction about how the Lord wants you to be an active, intentional giver in your life. I'm not, I'm not sure that you'll ever be able to do that in a church service. That if you're hoping, like the backseat, if you're hoping in this moment that God will stir you through a song or something like that to give you deep conviction about this is how I'm going to live, I think what you have to do is take, take the fire of the moment that you have here. Now take it to the anvil of your life and begin to hammer out with the Holy Spirit what God is calling you to do. So we start with 10% is what I'm encouraging you to do so that you can begin to adjust your life to the rhythm of God so that something will happen. That's not the end. That's actually just the beginning. Because here's what I believe, that when I get into the rhythm of God 
when I begin to get into this place of going, okay, now I see, God, it's all yours, and I know that you've not left me, you've not abandoned me, I don't need to be afraid of myself, I don't need to be afraid of other people, I can live freely in this transformation that you've given me, and everything is yours, and now I can scheme with you, Holy Spirit, and you're with me, and you're active, and you're working, something bigger happens that has nothing to do with money. This week, I was listening to some lectures on TEDs and um, came across a lecture by a girl that has a lot of ties here in Nashville, and I think some of you actually know her. Uh, but she began when she was a student, I think she went to Vanderbilt, um, began to wrestle with this whole question about money, giving to the poor, how do I give to the poor, how much do I give to the poor, and she really wrestled with the struggle between I, I want to give, but Jesus also says you'll always have the poor with you. So I want to alleviate the suffering of the poor, but how do you do that if the odds are stacked against you? So she began to wrestle with God in this. Some of you probably could tell this story better, but she began to travel, and she found herself in third world countries where she was actually with poor people and just began to ask them and what, about their lives and talking to them because this journey of getting in the rhythm of God began to take her to places bigger than Nashville. It began to take her all over the world. As she got into the rhythm of God, her view of herself and her world and her life began to expand exponentially in a crazy kind of way to where when she met this one farmer, he said, look, I don't want, your, I don't want you to give me anything, but I want you to lend me something. Will you lend me enough money with me and my friends to buy a truck? I think it was a truck that they bought first. So she came back home with her friends, and they raised enough money to lend to these farmers $3,500 to buy a truck and anticipated to get paid back. They called that group of people that raised that money the dream team. Guess what? They got paid back. And then, because she was in the rhythm of God, she began to realize maybe there's something to this and began to dream of person-to-person microfinancing. In other words, what she dreamed about was, what if somebody in America actually knew the person they're lending money to in, say, South Africa or, say, North Africa, and they knew their story? And when they gave money, they knew it was going directly to that person, and they could chart their progress and then get paid back. Would people care about that? Do you see how... Do you see how little this has to do with her money now, but how the transformation that's taking place in her? Well, that dream became a reality, and her and her friends started Kiva. If you've heard of it, her name is Jessica Jackley, and as of August of this year, Kiva has distributed, get this, $233 million in micro-lending. I don't think she's more like 23. Maybe now she's 25. Listen, this is how many lenders are a part of Kiva. It's, it's almost 615,000 people. It's a total of 309,000 loans that have been funded. Guess how much of it's been paid back? 98.79%. That's remarkable. See, what I'm trying to help you guys see is, you think God cares about your money? Do you think God is, is saying, please give me more, give me more? God cares about your heart. And God says, will you get into my rhythm? 
Will you get into my rhythm? Will you learn from me? Do I have a right to speak into your life? Does the father have a right to say to his son, because I love you, I have good things for you? And those good things may not be what you think they are. Listen to what uh, Jessica said. This is beautiful. Believing in each other, really being sure when push comes to shove that each one of us can do amazing things in the world. That is what can make our stories into love stories and our collective story into one that continually perpetuates hope and good things for all of us. When I read that, I got envious. I said, I wanted to say that. You know where a quote like that comes from? It comes from somebody who let go and began to see exponentially the greatness of her God. Now, she may not say that. She may say that. I don't know. I know that the scriptures say that. I know that you can say that. I know that when you get into God's rhythm, that you will find that you will get God's dream for you which is always bigger than you ever possibly imagined. I promise you. Hmm. We're about to sing some songs, but let me tell you what we're going to do in these songs as we sing them. Maybe you need to sing because it's a response to what God's doing in your heart right now. Maybe you don't know what the Lord's doing in your heart right now. Maybe what I've said this morning is like a familiar song that you're not sure you can really understand what it is but it's calling you to something that you know you're being called to and it's pulling on your heart. And you just need to stay where you are and write in your journal or ask the Lord to speak to you. But we're, we're going to sing a couple of songs, then we're going to come back to a time of silence and to the passage that I read at the beginning of the service because we're really trying to set you up. No kidding. I'm trying to set you up to possibly believe that the gospel is true, that you've been changed. And hey, you know what? The world is waiting for the church to stop to be a couple of people that come on Sunday morning into a building. And they're waiting for a bunch of transformed people that say, we are the church. To stand up and live the dream that God has for them. So kind of come into this time of worship and let the Lord meet you, minister to you, guide you, maybe even rebuke you. Father, Lord, Isn't it crazy, Lord, how fear becomes a thing that kills dreams? How insecurities shrink my view of myself and you. How doubts begin to multiply in the darkness of night. And how easy it is for me to live such a small life, hanging on to the small little things that I have, thinking that they're all I have. Jesus. I pray, Father, that we would not walk away like the rich young ruler, but today we would receive your invitation to live in your rhythm, to begin to embrace our our limits, to behold your limitlessness, to understand that nothing I have is mine, that it's all yours, and you are calling me into the grandeur of realizing I'm yours too. Father, I pray for my friends as we worship now, as we sing. Lord, let our hearts resonate with your presence here. Lead us, we pray, Holy Spirit, in Christ's name. Amen.